0: Welcome to the Body by Phil podcast. My name is Phil. I am a personal fitness trainer and a champion natural bodybuilder. But before I became an award winning trainer, I had to battle a 20 year drug and alcohol addiction. I had to fight obesity, binging, and other eating disorders, and a variety of many serious health issues. Through my unique experiences, I have successfully helped over 400 people reach or exceed their fitness goals. It is my sincere pleasure to help you do the same. Welcome to the Body by Phil podcast, Episode 2. In Episode 1, I briefly described my childhood. starting with my birth where I was born prematurely and and had some birth defects and chronic asthma that transpired from those birth defects, and how I had to overcome those early in life, and also how I started my poor eating habits at a very young age, and how that started to go into my adulthood. I want to touch in Episode 2 more about my military experience and how I started to gain weight in the military, but also how I started to introduce alcohol as a coping mechanism uh, for things in my life, and how that coping turned into um, a massive addiction, and I became an alcoholic for most of my adult years. So I graduated high school in 1987, I was about 168 to 170 pounds, pretty lean, decent shape, and when I went into basic training, it was my real first example of how you can turn food into muscle. Now, I've heard a lot of stories um, about how awful military food is. Well, I was stationed in Fort McClellan, Alabama, Uh, I was in Military Police Academy out there, And I gotta say, the food was really quite good. Not only was it good, but skinny guys like me were given a lot. I felt bad for the people who were trying to lose weight in basic training because they would be standing in the chow line and the drill sergeants would take food off their trays in front of them and give it to the skinnier guys, like me, and make us eat more food. I didn't understand why. We didn't question a lot of things then. You just did what you were told, and that was it. But in the military, it was probably my first example of the science of muscle hypertrophy, which is the muscle building uh, that we, we can do. And muscle hypertrophy is when you convert food energy into muscle. For example, I was given very high-calorie food in the military. We started eating very early, and we were eating, even if we were out on a range or on a march, we had high-caloric foods in our, in our pouches that they would feed us, and then our lunches were, you know, very big, and then, of course, m- more snacks throughout the day, and then our dinners, so and then lights out, <clears throat> But these were high-calorie foods, and they were packed with uh, proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. Now, we worked out constantly. We were always on the move, on the march, doing push-ups, doing sit-ups, doing running, everything. I mean, basically, from the moment you got up at 0500 to lights out at around 21, 2200, 9, or 10 p.m., you were working, moving out, burning calories. So if you're already quite thin, like me and you don't have the right caloric intake, and you're working out seven to eight hours a day, which is what we did, your body has nothing to use as fuel. It's going to look at body fat, which I didn't have much of at the time. And when there's no body fat or carbohydrates in your body, then your body's going to look at muscle storage uh, as its primary source of energy, and then you'll start to consume your own muscle tissue for energy and that's called a state of going catabolic. The military knew this even when I did not. So they would feed you a lot of food. Well, when I went into basic training at about 168 pounds, when I came out of basic training, I was about 186 pounds. I was pretty rock solid. I felt pretty good. Um, after basic training, though, and we went over into what's called AIT, Advanced Individual Training, and when I learned how to be a uh, an MP, military police, the activity levels start to slow down. You're not; it's not quite as demanding. So remember, coming from my background with the Italian family and the food habits and the eating habits that I instilled very early in life. In the military was kind of controlled. You can only eat when they told you to, you know. But we were so busy, it didn't really matter. After basic training and after AIT, then when you're left to your own, you know, then you can start, you know, bringing in some of those bad habits again. Now, I was already starting to put on some size. Yes, some of it was muscle. But the working out, as I said, had started to slow down. So I started to keep uh, consuming these high-energy foods, working out much less, and then the waistline started to get a little bigger. In time, the waistline started getting really big, and I started having difficulty in the military, even passing my physicals. Uh, We had to run two miles. We had to do so many push-ups and so many sit-ups, and where this used to be a joke, I mean, I could do this no problem, it was starting to become a little tricky. It's becoming much more difficult, and I was starting to notice it. Now, as I said in episode one, I wasn't a drinker. I never really drank. I didn't do drugs, anything like this in high school, even when my friends did. I never was. I was never really tempted by any of that. Now, in the military, you see all kinds of walks of life, and you get to meet all kinds of interesting people from all over the place. So one particular incident in 1989 I was stationed in Anchorage, Alaska for a drill, and it was called Brimfrost 89. Now, the idea behind this kind of training was to teach the soldiers how to fight and survive in very harsh climates, uh, in particular cold. So we were out there in January, February of 1989, and lucky me, it just so happened to be the coldest winter on record since the early, or I'm sorry, late 1960s. So it was really cold, and when I say cold, I mean 60, 65 below zero. This is the kind of temperature and the kind of weather that is very harsh and very unforgiving, and if you don't pay attention, lethal. Deadly. So while we're there, I remember <clears throat> we had uh, suited up, and it took about a half an hour to put on all this cold weather gear. And in fact, it it took a buddy system, you and somebody else. Your buddy had to help you put on all this gear to make sure it was right from your boots to these pants you had to put on uh, to these parkas and special hoods and special gloves. They look like big oversized oven mitts. Um, You did all this to make sure that there was no exposed skin because exposed skin in that kind of climate would only last about 15 minutes before frostbite would would set in. So you had to be very, very careful. One particular night, the climate got really bad, and we were all sitting in this gymnasium. The roads to where we were going to our barracks had been closed, there were some problems with weather, and, and we couldn't get to our barracks, so we were staying in this big, giant gymnasium and these guys were making coffee and this and that and everything else and it was kind of funny cuz when they would open up the door uh the gym door going into the outside you could see that the cold weather like just the snow like just coming in kind of like that dried ice. You know, you could see that fog just roll in almost like you opened up a freezer door. It was unbelievable. But they would take this hot water that they were making coffee with and experiment with something that they had thought was false turned out to be true. You take a cup of hot water in that kind of condition and you throw it out the window or the door and you would hear (laughs) and the water would vaporize going from super hot to super cold, it would vaporize in midair and not a droplet would hit the ground. you just hear a little and it was gone. It was really cool. So we were doing this on and off, you know, and the sergeants would be yelling at us to shut the door because it was so cold and this and that, but we were having a blast doing that. Anyway, we are all sitting around playing cards and playing around with this water experiment, and we get a call. We get a call from um, headquarters that there was a Tragedy, some sort of massive accident close to where we were. We didn't know exactly what it was, we just knew that it was some sort of catastrophe accident. And because of the conditions, the normal respondents could not get there in a timely manner, and we were only about two miles away. So we had to respond. Now, this was. It's 1989. This was probably about eight or nine o'clock in the evening, so we start suiting up to go out into these, into the elements, and keeping in mind this is before the Humvee was introduced. The Humvee would be introduced to uh, to our battalion, I think, right around 1990, 91. But in Alaska, we did not have the Humvee. We had the old style Jeeps. And these Jeeps were really, really old. We actually had them shipped over on C-130 cargo planes. The problem with the Jeeps were the batteries. And this kind of cold weather, once you shut it off, you weren't getting it turned back on. So the Army's answer to this was keep the Jeeps running 24 hours a day with a fuel detail. So we would stand out there and people would have their jobs all night doing nothing but fueling up these Jeeps. I don't know. I can't even imagine what that cost to do. But we did it. And we would fuel these things up all night so that it would stay running. Well, we get out to our Jeeps, and we're following everybody. Uh, the commander is uh, driving. And we, on, on our way, find out that this is going to be a plane crash. Apparently, a C-130 plane full of National Guardsmen from Canada, Uh, their instrument panels froze up, and and when they thought they were going to be landing on the runway, there was no visibility. They couldn't see. They were actually landing um, a couple miles off course, and they were heading right for and landing in the Redwood Forest. a redwood tree alone, some of them are so massive in size, you could actually drive a car, if you tunneled out the base of a redwood tree, you could drive a car through it. Now imagine a forest of those and a, train, a plane crashing headfirst into these. This was the crash site that we came upon. Visibility was very, very low, but one thing I remember about that night, a few things, I mean, there's some things that I'll never forget about that night, but before we got to the crash site, I remember seeing the northern lights for the very first time, and if you've never seen what the northern looks like, northern lights look like, they're quite spectacular. They don't look real. It's uh, like a giant canvas uh, oil painting in the sky and uh, quickly sh- shifting colors and changing. There was a lot of... A lot of greens and whites and oranges. And like I said, it just looked amazing. It was just a constant array of lights and colors. And it was, had not been for the tragic situation we were coming up on. It would have been quite spectacular. When we got to the crash site, well, before we had left the crash site, my sergeant, uh, I was good friends with him, He came over and gave me a thermos full of hot soup. Uh, He said, here, put this in your weatherproof canteen, and when you get cold, you know, sip on your soup a little bit and help warm you up and this and that. And I really appreciated that, so I had that on my side. We get out to the crash site, and I remember we come up on top of this ridge. And as we looked over the, the hillside, you can see the path of these splintered redwood trees that look like just splintered toothpicks, just thousands of these things. And those of you who don't know what a C-130 craft looks like, they are massive. We we can actually fit our battalion inside with vehicles and so on, just two planes. So they are absolutely huge. Well, the plane hit with such ferocity that the nose and the tail had split and were about 300 meters away from one another. And in that split, of course, the um, the soldiers' bodies were flung everywhere. So as our first person on the scene, you know, first people on the scene, our unit, our job responsibilities were to go and collect uh, bodies. Uh, collect any kind of identification and belongings and things like this and keeping in mind that you only have about 15 to 20 minutes to do that in a buddy system before you have to pair off um, go back to your jeeps warm up and then go back out you had to do this in shifts so You really had to be careful because if your feet got frozen, you were in big trouble. So your feet were inside these boots. They called them Mickey Mouse boots. They were really huge. They looked like big Mickey Mouse boots. And there was an outer layer and an inner layer. It was like wearing two boots in one. But the job of the boot was to keep your feet warm. Okay. The problem with that is they were so warm it would make your feet sweat inside those thermal socks. So if your feet started to sweat and then they started to go cold, your sweat would freeze to your skin and you would have frostbite within an hour, Um, and it could be very, very bad too. You know, the longer it would go, even protected inside the boots. So we had to keep going back to our vehicles and take these boots off and put on a fresh pair of socks. I mean, this was just going on all night. Well, we saw some pretty horrible things, needless to say, and some of those things still to this day haunt me to be out there and being only, what, 21 years old and having to see what what I had to see with zipping up bodies, putting, putting young guys in these body bags, and sometimes you were lucky if you found the body intact. Um, Everything, parts and body parts and belongings, had to be collected. And it was a very, very hard thing to do. But we did it. We did our jobs. When we got back, I don't even know how long this all took. It seemed to have taken days, but I think it was only about a 24-hour period. By the time we got back to our makeshift barracks inside the gymnasium, a lot of these guys were... uh, pulling out their whiskey bottles and different things and sitting around and talking about what they had seen and they were all drinking in in a circle sitting around on this gym floor and in their sleeping bags and you know that's just what they did so I had never really done that so I thought well okay this is what guys do you know you you deal with something terrible or tragic and you drink so I joined in and that's what I did that was the beginning of my problem. That was the beginning of my alcoholism. It actually had a start date. What I did after that was use alcohol as a means to cope with anything. I didn't drink later in life for the taste of alcohol. I never did, I never drank that as a connoisseur I can never be a wine taster and swish it around and spit it into a, a bucket. No way. I mean, I drank for one purpose, and one purpose only was to get highly intoxicated and drunk. My, my second experience in the military came a few years later when I got called up active duty during Operation Desert Storm. Now, that's a completely different climate, of course, than Saudi Arabia, I mean, then Alaska, Saudi Arabia was hot, you know, so you go from snow and permafrost and negative 65 to sand and over 100 degrees. Now, my health issues that I had as a child and my chronic asthma, a lot of people ask me, how on earth did you get in the military having asthma? Well, it's simple. Back then, nobody cared. When I enlisted in '87, my recruiter knew, and he said, "Don't put that down." (laughs) It was really just that simple. Don't put, yeah, just don't write that. Um, And they threaten you with a fine. They say, you know, you you can be fined this or that, or be demoted, or kicked out, or whatever. It was not a big deal. Nobody really cared. Nobody ever looked, and nobody ever will care. So anyway, yes, I got in the military having asthma. So anyway, uh, Operation Desert Storm, unit gets called up active duty, prisoner transfer, Saudi Arabia. They train you in four-part teams. By now, the Humvee has been introduced, and it was an awesome vehicle. I first got the Humvee when I was stationed in Germany. It was still considered a classified vehicle, so we weren't allowed to take any pictures we didn't have cell phones or anything like that then but everybody had a camera so of course the first thing we did when we could was take pictures and send them to everybody and said how cool this classified vehicle is and uh, we got to test drive these suckers all through germany and uh, man we got some looks driving around the nose and um uh, it was a good time now germany of course you know is the capital of drinking um we we never missed an opportunity to go and eat and drink and eat and drink, and by now my my weight has gone up and I've had to change pants and in military uniforms a few times now because I was getting I was definitely getting heavier and you could see the pictures and my face was getting fatter and so on. Uh, this all happened between Alaska and Saudi Arabia and Germany, so going back to saudi arabia the training was a four-part person so i was a 60 gunner i sat up in the turret of the humvee and i was a 60 gunner there's a driver there's a navigator and there's somebody that uh, is on the radio in the back they train you together so everybody knows each other's jobs in case somebody gets sick or or whatever then they uh then you can be replaced and, and everybody knows everybody's jobs well, it so happened to be, you know, the asthma issues and, and the climate and this and that. I ended up getting um a bronchial infection which actually turned into ammonia and I was shipped to uh back to um Fort Dix, New Jersey in the holding pattern, and I was not allowed to rejoin my team over in Saudi Arabia. So when you when you mess with the team, somebody has to take your place. Okay. So the person who took my place was actually a friend of mine. Um, I won't use his name, but he was one of the first casualties of war over in Saudi Arabia during Desert Storm. And what happened was, because I wasn't there, he took my place and was in the 60-gun turret. And they were driving at night on one of the roads in Saudi Arabia, and they were hit by an oncoming tanker, semi of some sort, and he was killed instantly uh, where I would have been, and that would have been me. So, you know, you think about these things, and when I got the news of that, while they were pinning a medal on my chest uh, because this war was basically over, you know, it didn't last very long, I was awarded the um, High Performance Award for Excellence, and I was also given the National Defense Medal for my... uh, active service during Desert Storm but you know his parents were burying him so of course you know you take that information and and I used it as more excuses to uh, drown my sorrows and and abuse myself through alcohol and more binge eating and this is all I, I did for a long time my military experience was only you know i had uh, four years and a couple years inactive i played around in the national guard did some stuff there did some stuff in the reserves nothing serious but those two incidents uh are were were the big ones the alaska when i first drank and then of course uh, the saudi arabia Losing, losing a friend and cheating death for the second time. So this is twice now where, by all you know purposes, I should not be alive. Um, um, again, I said this in my first episode, is that I, I do believe that the reason that God has given me this second chance and third and fourth and so on at life was to take these experiences and do something good with them. For years, I didn't get that. I, I, I used to just drown all my feelings and and my negative thoughts in, into alcohol and later on prescription drugs and things like this. But um, the military opened my eyes to some good things, some bad things, and some things that I'll just never forget. Um, so that was my military experience, and that was my cheating death for the second time, and early on, like I said, it showed me the ability to turn muscle, uh, turn food into muscle through through high calorie intake and a lot of exercise, which was the positive. And then in the negative, you know, as I started to become less active in the military, then you know, the body weight started to come back on and I started to fail at my PT tests. It started to get much, much harder to do. Uh, I started to use alcohol as a coping mechanism for anything that would go bad in my life. And that's going to lead me into some really shocking things coming up with some DUIs, some jail time, um, some other craziness. So I appreciate you listening to this second episode and I'm going to have this open for messaging. So feel free to message me if there's anything else you'd like to hear. Let me know. I'm going to have about eight to ten more podcast episodes detailing specific parts of my life and how I went from fit to massively obese, alcoholic, prescription, pain pill problems, shed all that off and went into becoming a Uh, getting myself sober, becoming a, a personal fitness trainer, and dedicating my life to serving others and helping them get healthy, get fit, beat addictions of every kind. Thank you for listening to our second episode of Body by Phil. Take care. Talk to you soon.